Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. We continue our little mini-series today leading up into Easter. We're going to talk about the cross today. Before we get into that, I'll go ahead and tell you where you can turn. Matthew chapter 26 is where we'll be in the Bible. While you're turning there, let me uh, just encourage you once again to invite someone to church with you for next Sunday. Um, I just can't tell you how important it is. There's someone somewhere waiting on you to ask them, and uh, they want to come to church. They really do, but they don't want to go by themselves. They don't want to have to walk into a strange place and be around people that they don't know and, and not know the customs and not know the, you know, the, the lingo or the, the thing. You know, we're, uh, Seth Godin talks a lot about tribes. We are a tribe. Uh, we are a tribe. We have a certain way of doing things, and when someone from the outside comes in, it's intimidating. And all they want is someone to ask them to go and to sit with them and kind of see them through the process. It takes incredible courage to walk through those doors for the very first time. And if you've done that today, uh, we, you honor us with your presence. We're really glad that you're here, and, and it means something to us that you would spend your Sunday morning with us. So um, next Sunday, we're expecting a whole lot of people. I heard a preacher this week say to his congregation, I'm not saying this to you, but I heard a preacher this week say to his congregation, if you are not bringing a guest to the nine whatever service they had and the ten something service they had, don't come to that service. How's it, can you believe that? Now, now they have sixteen other services for the weekend that they're going to let people go to, so it's not like they can't go to church, okay? But he said we're going to be so full in that particular one, and we're trying to reach lost people, so we're trying to make room for them. Now, I'm not going to say that. I will say this. I will say this. We're also going to have a seven thirty service next week. And if you're one of the home folk and you could pick any one of the three services and, it, and, and it's all the same, let me get you out of bed just a little earlier next Sunday and get you to the first service, that 730, so that we can have plenty of room for what we anticipate being a lot of visitors next week. We've been seeing tons and tons of visitors. That's great. We love that. But we want to make sure we've got room for them. So just work with us. You know, work with me, people. Work with me. And uh, if you can, come to that 730 service. That'd be great. Okay, Matthew chapter 26, we're talking about the cross today. Last week we talked about the cup, actually the four cups of communion at Passover <clears throat> when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. I want to pick up kind of where we left off last week, although last week we were in Luke, this week we're in Matthew, still the same part of history. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is actually a garden that was made up of olive trees just outside the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, the Olive Garden was a place, in fact, you know, not where you go get a great salad and some soup. That, you know, predating all that. This was, goes way back. Um, the word Gethsemane actually means a place of pressure or olive press. It's a, it's, that's literally what that, that Gethsemane means. And, and it was in this place that Jesus would experience excruciating pressure. Um, he was just moments away from his arrest, from his trial and and crucifixion and in this story the bible says and he said to them sit here while i go over there and pray he took peter and the two sons of zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled then he said to them my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death has that ever been you has your soul ever been so overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me the Bible tells us that the pressure was so great on Jesus that he was sweating drops of blood. And I've, I've read uh, doctors' accounts of how that can be possible. That can be medically explained, but it, it, is, it only happens when there is unbelievable 
stress and pressure on a person, and Jesus got to that point. Um, Jesus had to experience and encounter uh, these things so ghastly so that when we come to him, when you and I come to him with our stuff and we say, God, this is too much. I can't take it. I can't stand it. This is more than I can bear. He can say, I, you know, it's okay for you to come, with me, come to me with that, but you need to understand I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be under such pressure and such stress that you think that everything is just about to come undone. Jesus understands that. We're told in Hebrews that he was tempted and tried in every way as we are and yet was without sin. That's very powerful and meaningful to me. It was his goal and mission in, as the, what we refer to him as the God-man, fully human, fully God, to actually experience everything that you would possibly experience so that he would qualify to be your best friend and be your savior. It was very important for him to go through all that so that when you come to him with something and you think to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to make this, he says, I know exactly what that feels like. And he went through the pressure and he comes to you and says, I, I can, I'm qualified to carry your load. I'm qualified to be your savior and your friend. He understands. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't say, hey, you know, what's your problem? Why don't you just get over yourself? Why don't you just, just settle down and dial it down a little bit and, and, you know, just don't be so upset? No, he understands. And he's going through this thing in the Bible. The Bible goes on to say, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And there, the humanity side of Jesus, I think we've all faced this. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. And then he says these words, yet not as I will but as you will. You're going to see in just a few minutes just what a huge statement that is. Is there some other way that we could do this, God? Because <clears throat> I know what's going to happen tomorrow. And what's going to happen tomorrow is going to not only be a huge spiritual problem for me, but it's a physical problem for me. God, they are going to put me through a literal hell tomorrow. And I'm about to go through a night like no one's ever known, and I'm about to experience a death that few will know. And what I like about the fact that the Bible tells us this is that God wants us to see the vulnerable human side of Jesus. He didn't want to go through the agony of the cross any more than you and I would. He didn't want all the stress and pressure any more than you and I would. But it was here in this place of prayer. And I want you to notice something. He shows his true feelings because in this prayer, you know, he says, I, I, I'm not, God, the natural part of me doesn't want to go through this. But I don't want to listen to the natural part of me. I don't want to listen to that side that, that's selfish. I don't want to listen to that part of me that's telling me, you know, you don't have to do this. But I'm going to go with what the Spirit says. I'm going to do what the spirit inside me tells me to do and he says not my will but your will be done so when you're going through times of pressure and when you're going through things that you you couldn't even explain to anybody if your life depended on it and you were trying to get them to understand how hard this is you can rest assured that jesus knows exactly what you're going through and you can pray to him and you can cry out and you can say god i you know I, i'm ready to just hang it all up i can't i can't do it anymore uh, there's, there's too much, it's, it's too much on me. You know, and you don't have to use fancy words. It doesn't have to be some you know, beautiful, crazy thing. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just be honest with him. 
Just be honest and pour out what's in your heart. And God will cause the spirit that is in you to be stronger and your spirit will be ready, better ready to take over in that situation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Then skip to the second part of verse 50. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, arrested him, 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions, and we believe, we know from someplace else in Scripture this is Peter. Peter reaches for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Right there on the spot, he cuts this dude's ear off. He just lops it right off. And Jesus, you know, I don't expect this was a, you know, a chuckling moment. You know, I don't think this was a moment where everybody's all happy and going to chuckle about it. I don't think it was that at all. But, but you know... You can kind of see Jesus looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you know, we can't go around cutting people's ears off. I don't know what you're thinking, but, but we can't do this. And so he, he actually bends down and picks up this guy's ear and he puts it back on the side of his head and heals him. Now, maybe it's just me, but if I'm in that group that's come to arrest Jesus and I'm going to, uh, I believe he's this bad guy and we got, you know, and, and to these soldiers, let's be fair, to, to them, Jesus is just another guy. He's just another guy we've got to go get, and they're going to crucify him tomorrow, just like the guys we saw crucified last week or yesterday or two days ago. This was nothing special to them. But I know something about this guy, and what I know about this guy is he claims to be the Son of God, and they're going to arrest him, and that's what they want to kill him for. And I just watched this other guy, and I've heard story, you know, I've heard all kinds of commentary on the size of the sword that Peter used. It probably wasn't real big, and he probably wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He's probably trying to kill him. And the guy, you know, moved and cuts off his ear. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on. At that point, when you see that happen, is there something in you that goes, I think maybe we've got the wrong guy. You know, I think there may be something to this whole God thing because, I mean, I just saw him put that dude's ear back on. And he's, he's not bleeding and he's fixed. They arrest him and they begin the process. It's about 9 o'clock on a Thursday night, and for the next 12 hours, Jesus is literally going to go through hell. He will endure six different trials, all of which are illegal. It was illegal to try a man at night in Jesus' time. And they take him first to a guy named Annas, and Annas was the religious leader who pretty much had drummed up all these charges on Jesus he had actually paid witnesses to lie and say things about Jesus that were not true. That didn't work. They sent him on to a guy named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. And he didn't have much luck with his little mini-trial either. They sent him over to a group called the Sanhedrin, which was a, uh, an organized group of religious leaders. And, and um, they tried him. No luck there either. Really frustrated. They said, let's just send him over to Pilate. Let's let the Romans handle it. Pilate didn't want to mess with it, and it's probably about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning now. Can you imagine being Pilate, and you've been awakened out of bed to, to, to deal with this scoundrel, and probably Pilate had heard Jesus' name and knew a little bit about him, but, um, you know, in Pilate's mind, this isn't somebody that ought to be keeping me up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean, I want to get rid of him and get back to bed. So he uh, ships him over to Herod, and of course, all along the way, Jesus is being falsely accused by all these people. He's standing in front of Herod. Herod was the governor of Judea, and had some interest in Jesus just from the standpoint he'd heard about him. 
And to, to Herod, Jesus was somewhat of a circus act. You know, it was, a, it was a novelty. I want to take a look at this guy. Everybody's talking about him. I want to see him. And eventually Herod is, is uh, you know, he satisfies whatever curiosity he's got and, and doesn't want to really deal with the problem. So he sends him back to Pilate. That's where we pick up the story. It's the sixth trial now, and we're, that's where we pick up. Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. The chief priest priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Verse 60, but they did not find any. The only charge they brought against Jesus that they really could find, which was actually true and he was guilty of, was verse 63, the second part, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. To which he answers, you have said so. A little further down in verse 67, they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. Now let me stop you for just a minute to explain to you that this is what separates Jesus from a lot of others because Jesus didn't just come to earth with a lot of great ideas and some really cool PowerPoint presentations and, and, you know, and teach a little bit. Jesus was more than just a good prophet. He was more than just uh, a teacher or a nice man. Uh, a lot of religious people want to embrace Jesus and a lot of people believe that he was a wonderful prophet. Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet. Other religions respect his views, but you really can't go there because of this one claim that he made. If, if, if all he claimed was to be a good guy and a good teacher, then you could just let it all go, and maybe you could embrace him. But when he crossed the line is when he said, I'm God. That's when, that's when things really got sticky for Jesus. Because it changed everything. It would be like me coming to you and me showing you some real slick PowerPoint stuff and... and um, you might listen to that, and I might have a couple of sermon series, and you go, well, that's, that's good. And you might listen, but at the point that I claim to be God, that's when you'd check out. You'd probably chuckle and if you didn't just get flat out mad and say, I'm done. I'm done. I don't want to hear that, because you, you, we all know I'm not God. And at the point that a person claims to be God, you really only have three choices. And in the, these guys' case, they, they only had three choices. The first choice is to say, you know what, this guy has lost his mind. He's crazy. Unbelievable that he would claim to, to, to be God. That's just not right. Or the second thing is he's out of his mind. He's, he's, and he's, he's the biggest con man. The second thing would be that he's the biggest con man. He's just a liar. You know, he's trying to get me to believe something that's not necessarily true. He's a deceiver. He's trying to mess people up. Or thirdly, he is who he says he is. There are only three choices. That's why Jesus can't be a good prophet and just a good teacher. He makes the claim to be God. You can't make the claim to be God and be a good teacher if you're not God. And when he makes that claim, everything changes. He was either deluded, he was a deceiver, or he was deity. The way Josh McDowell says it is he was either the liar, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's one of those three. He can't be two of them. He's got to be one of those three things. And I'm here to tell you today, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he is the Lord. And we embrace him that way, he, he makes a very unique claim, he is God. Well, this all sets a, a chain of events in motion, which leads up to our topic today, the cross, uh, the crucifixion. Hundreds of years before, prophets had prophesied about the crucifixion, and, and uh, there are over 400 different prophecies all of which are fulfilled in one man. And statisticians tell us that the probability of something like that happening are just through the roof 
I mean, I've heard all kinds of cool things like if you filled the state of Texas a foot deep with quarters and you flew over with an, an airplane and threw one red quarter out and then you parachute threw another plane over and he parachuted out and then he landed right on that red quarter. Those were the odds. I don't know. How do you figure something like that out? That is crazy. I, didn't, I hated math in, in school and so I took Greek instead. I took Greek instead of math in college because I hate math. But it's, it's, I mean, it, it defies any kind of odds you can imagine. I mean, it's bigger than any lottery you've ever thought about, you know, just the, the, the odds of this, these, all these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus, and yet they were. Four distinct things were prophesied in, he, in, um, in Isaiah. I want to read those to you. This is Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That's one. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now the reason Isaiah takes time to specifically spell out both the wound and the benefit is because it's important for you and me today to understand that there is a historical context for this. And you've got to realize that the historical event of the crucifixion, each one of those wounds of the cross has a benefit for you today. I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. It means that you need to embrace it. It means that you need to embrace the cross. You need to see it for what it is because there are benefits in it for you. The wounds that were on the cross mean something for you. So let's look at them one at a time. The first thing I want to talk about this morning is the whip. They called this, they also called this the scourging. When they would, and if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, they took him to a post. They handcuffed him or, you know, roped him to this post and, and stretched out his back and, um, they took what is known as the cat of nine tails. I've got a picture I want to show you of the cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was a, a, made of wood and leather. <clears throat> it was, uh, that's not really a picture, good picture for scale, but you could actually wrap two hands around that handle. The, the long leather uh, tines, there were nine of them. They were braided. They would have had embedded in them parts of metal and bone and glass and, and sharp rocks just embedded into the, the, the woven into the the strands of the cat of nine tails and whenever this gets shown in in a, a movie or whatever and it, I don't know that we see it all that often but when you do you typically see it and you see those nine um, strands hit skin and then kind of bounce off and as it passes through it you know kind of smacks and that's how you see that done I'm here to tell you today that's not how that was done they don't show you in, in a movie how that was done because it's too gross and it's, it's too graphic, but I want you to know how it was done. I want you to know what they did with this instrument. Because with this particular thing called the cat of nine tails, when they were going to whip Jesus with it, they also had a bucket of water there. And they would have soaked those leather straps in that bucket to make sure that it, was, it got wet and heavy. Because the idea wasn't just to smack your skin and have it glance off. The idea was to have it hit your skin and stick. And to embed all those shards of bone and glass and metal and rock into your skin and wrap around. And so the person who was administering this beating with both hands would, would do that kind of motion and let those leather straps do their work and hit the skin, embed those things into the skin. And then with both hands, he would pull on the whip. And there was prescribed how many of these you could do. 
40 less 1 was the prescription. If you exceeded 40, it was punishable by death. So the people that did this for a living, I mean, think about it. That's your job. You, you, I'm the cat of nine tails guy. I mean, can you imagine telling people that? I'm the guy that does the cat of nine tails. But if he were to exceed 40 lashes with this instrument, he, it was punishable by death. I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And so what they did was they never gave 40 because they were scared they would go over. So what they did was they came back one. They always said 40 less one. So it was 39. So they would do this 39 times. So they would hit Jesus 13 times over the, 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 the right trapezius muscles, then 13 over the left, and then 13 right down the center of the spine, systematically just demolishing his back, removing, I mean, uh, disconnecting tendons and muscle, laying his back wide open. Nine strands of leather, 39 times. You do the math on that. I told you I'm not a math major. That's a lot. And by the time they were done with Jesus, his back is split wide open. By his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You say, Brett, Healed from what? Healed from all things. Healed from sin. Healed from disease and sickness. And you say, well, I don't know if I'm, you know, ready to buy that. Well, before you protest too loudly, just let me say, I don't understand this exactly. I don't understand how very righteous people that I've known have gotten ill and fallen sick and we've prayed for them and we've lost them. I've seen scoundrels get ill, fall sick, get to the point of death we pray for them and they come back to life and they're healed i can't i don't know what it is where god says you know i'm going to heal this one i'm not going to heal that one i can't explain that to you but i can tell you this i have seen time and time again and i've heard where people have been told you know they're not going to make it and a group of people comes around and begins to pray and things happen when people pray i've heard too many stories about you know, medical miracles. I've heard too many doctors talk about things that have happened and they stand back and they just throw their hands up and they say, that's a miracle. I can't explain that to you. I don't know how that happened. By all rights and purposes, that dude should be dead and he's not, he's alive. So I can't explain it other than to say God has not closed up shop. God's not done. When he wants to heal someone, he fully well can heal somebody. By his stripes we are healed. But he heals our sin and our sin sickness as well. They took Jesus to the praetorium, which was like a military headquarters for the Roman guard. And in, down in the bowels of this facility was a uh, kind of like a locker room. That's probably not the best way to describe it. But it would have been a place where Roman soldiers would have been hanging out and, and talking. And you can just imagine how coarse that might be. And they brought Jesus there. And it would be here that they would start to mess with him for a while, probably hours. It's about 6, 7 o'clock in the morning at this point. He's gone through all this torture. They blindfold him and they start to pound on him and punch him, hit him in the face. This is after the 39 lashes. They start to hit him and mock him. And they, you know, they basically would hit him and say, you're a prophet. Tell us which one hit you. Tell, which one of us hit you? And those of us who are Christians know that Jesus could full well have told these guys who had hit him. And all I'll say is that if I had had the power of Jesus and known 
like Jesus, I'm sure, did, who was hitting him, and I had all the power available to me that Jesus did, I'm pretty sure I would have vaporized somebody that day. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure somebody would hit me in the face and I'd just go, pow, you know, watch all the other guys just kind of scurry. But with unbelievable resolve, Jesus took that on himself. And then to further mock him, spurred on by these comments about being the king of the Jews, they put on him the second thing I want to draw our attention to this morning. That's the crown of thorns, two inches long. They would have set this on his head and then pushed it down onto his skull. The head is a very vascular part of the body, so there'd be a lot of blood uh, loss from that. But there would have also been uh, bleeding on the inside, too, and the pain that would shoot straight to the brain. Not only was the punishment on his back now, but it's also on his body and on his head, and the punishment would go straight to his mind. All of that so that you and I could have one word that I just, the older I get, the more this word means to me, the word peace. Just he, God wants you to have peace. That's what Jesus wants to give you today. He wants you to have it. He went through all this, not only so that you would have healing, but so that you would have peace. John 14, verse 27 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Isaiah said it was the punishment that was, upon, that was put upon him that brought us peace. Some say he was prophesying about these crown of thorns. But, but this is for a reason. And, and when you feel pressure and anxiety and stress around you, instead you can feel peace. He, he endured this so that you could have it. From here, they would take him down what was known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. The victim would have to carry his own cross, probably not the whole thing. I think most people don't really understand how the cross was arranged in Jesus' time. Probably just the cross beam that would have weighed somewhere between 90 and 120 pounds. They would have given that to him, and he would have stumbled through the streets with that. That would have had hooks on the back of it and rings on the end so that they could basically hoist that up into place. He'd carry his own cross, and I'm sure as he went down the Via Dolorosa, there were people, some who sympathized with Jesus and cried and encouraged and spoke kind things to him, but there would have been an awful lot of people who didn't like him and had heard about him and were probably throwing things, rocks and you know, rotten food and just saying all kinds of nasty stuff. I mean, you can just imagine after everything you've been through, keep in mind, he hasn't had anything to eat or drink. He hasn't, he's been up for probably three days now. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life. Most men died at the scourging. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's just been brutalized. And now he's carrying his cross. He's brought to the outside of the city, just outside of Jerusalem. There was a foul smell that would have come up off the, the, the ground. And from that area, this would have been a dump. This, and this is where they crucified people. And this wasn't the first, Jesus wasn't the first or the last person to be crucified. This happened all the time. This, this road went right by there. The, the crucifixion was a very public thing. They wanted people to see this happen. They wanted to send a message. And so, you know, there was probably some rotted flesh. There was just, it was just would have been a gross, nasty, 
foul smell coming out of the ground and from that area, and that's what Jesus is carrying this cross to. And there he would be crucified between two other criminals. They would lay Jesus on that cross. They would nail his hands down. You hear that, and you probably know already that they probably didn't go through the palm. Uh, the palm You couldn't go through the palm and not break a bone, and you couldn't go through the palm and actually hold someone to a cross. Your, your hands just wouldn't support that kind of weight. So probably they think what happened is they went between the, the, the two bones here in the wrist. You can do that and not break anything. It's a very sensitive place. Um, and, when, and when you talk about the hand in the first century, everything from here down is considered the hand. So when they shook hands, a lot of times that's how they shook hands. It was a full deal. So uh, they nail his hand to the beam. And the purpose was to get you to hang there they would take your feet and affix them somehow to the board as well. And the whole goal was to get you to hang. What happened on the cross is you pretty much suffocated. You couldn't get air. Because what, what happens is your body, and they would bend your knees just a little. They would put a crook in your knees, and you would sag on that cross. And the way you would breathe is you would push yourself up to get a breath, and then your body would begin to sag again. Keep in mind, my hands are coming down as I do this, but his hands are pinned, and as that happens, your lungs cannot get the air they need. And so the way you would get air is you would push up with whatever strength you had off of your feet, and you would grab that bit of air, and then you would sag back down. Well, eventually the guards would, one of two things would happen. You would expire that way, and you would just basically suffocate on the cross because you couldn't get air. Or the guards would get tired of watching that and eventually just come up and stick a, uh, a board behind your knees or take a mallet and just crush your shins with it so that you could no longer push up, and you would suffocate. You would literally just not be able to get any air. And it is said that while the Romans did not invent crucifixion as a form of capital punishment or torture, they perfected it, and that is certainly true. And if they felt especially humane, they would break your legs so that you would go ahead and die and you wouldn't have to suffocate like that. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that not a bone in Jesus' body would be broken. They did not break Jesus' legs. He would hang there, his wounds on his back exposed to the rough-hewn cross and the splinters that are no doubt in that cross. And every time he pushed up to breathe, his raw back would rub up against wood. He would get that breath and come back down. Excruciating pain. I mean, you just can't even imagine that kind of pain. You say, Brett, why are you telling me this? Why, why is it important that you bring me into church and tell me this? Because I want you to understand how brave and how strong and how deep is the love of a God and a Savior who would be willing to submit Himself to us to have that done to Him, to give Himself. We didn't force it on Him. He took that on. I want you to understand how tough Jesus was. I want you to understand the kind of love that would make him go to the cross. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but you think about the fact that Jesus and God, I mean, the Trinity before time, you know, when they started to lay out time and they started to think about all that, 
And God said, now at some point, we're going to send Jesus to die for the people. Where will we do that? And as they surveyed all that, they could have said, you know, 2010, 2011, they'll be doing a lethal injection thing for capital punishment. We could send him there, but no, that's not. What about here? Because here is where they crucified people for capital punishment. They literally took nails and drove into their hands and pinned them to a board and hung them up for the world to see. And that's got to be incredibly painful, and that's got to be just the most brutal brutal in all of the things that we've ever seen. Surely there's nothing more brutal than that. God, that's where I need to go right there, because if I die that way, then they'll know, they'll know that I love them. That that if I would die for them in that way, they would understand that, that I truly do love them. That will show them. Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. See, your hands and your feet represent what you do, places you go, the stuff we do wrong, which is, you know, constant. We're constantly into stuff. That's why the third benefit was the nails. I talked to you about the whip and the crown of thorns. Then we come to the nails. uh, Hebrews says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That means that when you have done something, God doesn't say, Oh, I'll cover that. I'll... I'll, you know, I'll take care of that. He doesn't cover anything. The Bible says he washes it away. He will remember it no more. It's gone. That's so that you can not only have it paid for, but so that you can get rid of the guilt and shame that so racks us. I don't know how many times I've sat in counseling with people and, and in my own prayer life where I just have this guilt and shame. And I have people weep in my office from just feeling so guilty. Brett, I'm so ashamed of, of who I am and what I've become or what I've done. And it just eats them up. You need to hear me this morning. That death on that cross for the believer means no guilt and no shame for you. He took it all. He took it all. He will remember your sin no more. Some of you are here this morning trying to earn your way into God's love and into salvation. Can I just tell you that's not what God wants from you? He wants to wash you. He wants to cleanse you, renew you, clean you, give you a fresh start. Finally, about three that afternoon, the Bible says that Jesus breathed his last and he made a statement. He said, it is finished. Now, when he said it, it's not it the way we use it. He's talking about the job. The job is done. I've finished the job. And they didn't have to break his legs like so many others, but to make sure that he was dead, they would take a spear, they would run it just up inside his rib cage. Just They would find his rib cage, which I'm sure was pretty easy to find. And they would shove that spear up into his chest cavity with the sole intent and purpose to penetrate the heart. So that if he wasn't dead, that would surely kill him. But an interesting thing happened when they pulled the spear out. A mixture of blood and water came out. They weren't used to seeing this. This was an unexpected thing. They'd done this hundreds of times and probably not seen this very often. But the, the, the way that the blood and the water came out, it indicated something kind of strange was going on. Doctors say that that is, some, that is an indication that the heart has ruptured. And some doctors 
basically what they say is that he didn't die from the wounds or the whipping or the thorns or the nails. What he died of was an exploded heart. Isaiah says he was crushed for our iniquities. Everyone's gone through something painful. You know, we've all gone through physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual stuff. We, we've all gone through that. Is there anything worse than an emotional wound? He died so that you would know, not know heartache and heartbreak anymore. He died to take that kind of stuff away, but that you would know joy. Every pain, every problem, God wants to restore it. 2 Corinthians says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The question is, if someone were to come to earth and die for you in such a way and demonstrate this kind of love, what would the appropriate response be? I mean, how are we supposed to respond to a God who would die for us like this? Romans gives us a clue. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus, no doubt, went through excruciating pain. I mean, I just can't even imagine. But every parent understands, and Kyle kind of alluded to this in his remarks this morning. Every parent can know kind of what I'm talking about when I say, can you imagine what it was like for God to watch Jesus go through that? Can you imagine sending your son to die a death like that? I just can't imagine watching one of my kids go through something like that. And then the Bible asks a great question. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He would go to great lengths to show us his love. He would do anything. So how do you respond? How, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with this information? Okay, Brett, we talked about the whip and the crown of thorns and the nails and the spear what's my response to that? Well, the first response is love him back. I mean, he loves you. He did that because he loves you. Love him back. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friends. Forget organized religion. I talk to people all the time that, you know, I talk to people once in a while that'll say stuff like, you know, Brett, it's not, it's not Jesus that I have a problem with. It's the church that's my problem. I can't stand the church. Well, I can kind of understand that. Because so much of the church is made up of, it, it's just organized religion. It's just, a, it's just a bunch of people coming together to pay homage to a bunch of man-made rules. We're going to look a certain way and talk a certain way and dress a certain way and act a certain way. And if you don't act and look and talk like us, then you're not one of us. Can I just tell you that if you're new to this church, here's something I'll just tell you. When we see religion in this church, we take out the biggest knife we can find and we try to cut it to pieces. We can't stand man-made religion in this church. Now, God talks about pure religion as this, that you care for widows and orphans. We want to do that. But people come here and they say, man, Brett, this is a really cool church. How do you get this church to be this way? We don't tolerate religion. I don't want you to be religious. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. I want it to be new and fresh and different every day. So love him back. Second thing, hate sin. Coming to Jesus and living however you want doesn't say that you hate sin. Hate sin. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The last thing, tell others. If you know about Jesus, tell others. This is the week. 
You know somebody. Invite them to church. Tell them who Jesus is. Say, hey, listen, I got a great church for you to come. We won't, we're not going to put a sticker on you. We're not going to make you stand up. Preacher won't call you and say, hey, will you come back? None of that's going to happen, okay? Just, to, just say, hey, we just want you to come. I want you to just come to church with me. Love him back. Hate sin. Tell others. Can I just wrap up with this? If you don't know Jesus, and I've just described for you what Jesus went through on the cross for you, he did that to purchase forgiveness for you. The only difference between you, if you're not a believer or not a Christian, and every other Christian in this room is not that they're better than you, that I'm not better than you. It's not that I perform better than you. It has nothing to do with any of that. I said yes to a gift. I've been forgiven. That's the only difference between me and a person who's not come to Christ. And maybe today is the day that you say, you know what, forget this. I'm tired of not being forgiven. Yes, I will say yes to the cross. I will say yes to Jesus. And it doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect. And it doesn't mean you'll never sin again. And it doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. And I can't even guarantee that you won't get sick next week and die. I can't guarantee any of that. I can guarantee you this. You'll know peace. You'll know joy. And there will be a source of power within you that you cannot describe or explain to a non-believer. And maybe today's the day that you just stop, stop running and say, Yes. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. We're going to pray, and then we'll stand and sing. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I invite you to come forward. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for being the God that you are, tenacious, fierce. You did not allow sin to be a permanent barrier between us and you. But you gave us the cross. And Lord, it's been graphic and ugly this morning and we've talked about some things and we don't like to think about this kind of stuff. It's gross. That, that one human being or a group of human beings could inflict this kind of torture on someone else, just we can't explain or understand that and, and we're not proud of it. But we certainly are thankful for Jesus. And we recognize in this moment that without him, we are completely and utterly lost. But Father, joy and peace flows from that cross in the form of forgiveness. And there is no more guilt and there is no more shame. And I walk away unscathed because Jesus took it all. And we use words like grace and mercy, mercy being that which I deserve and do not get, and grace being that which I don't deserve and is given to me. And in the cross, you do both of those things. You give me grace and mercy. And while I don't deserve it, I'm certainly thankful. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name.